Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today is Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Today is day two of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. Man, the Democrats are blistering Donald Trump. Wait until we show you the newest video, including how Eugene Goodman, the black Capitol Hill cop, actually saved the life of Senator Mitt Romney. Also, uh, we talked with Simone Sanders, uh, of course, senior advisor and chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris, about... Of course, the American Rescue Plan and COVID-19 in Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the Chicago Teachers Union, have agreed to a deal to open schools for in-person classes beginning tomorrow. A woman last seen with Kawan Bobby Charles, the teen who was found in the sugarcane field in Louisiana, brutally murdered, now facing charges in his disappearance. Wells Fargo announced Tuesday that it will invest $50 million into black-owned banks. $50 million? What are y'all doing with black-owned media? Four Louisiana state troopers are facing charges after investigation found they participated in practices of using excessive force. And in Utah, parents of students attending a predominantly white academy have dropped their request for the children to opt out of Black History Month curriculum after a massive blowback. And PepsiCo's officially removed Aunt Jemima from its pancake mix and syrup. 
we'll show you the new logo. Plus, we'll speak with one of the curators of Come See About Me, the Mary Wilson Supremes Coalition, which can be seen at the African American Museum in Philadelphia. Plus, we'll check in with a woman who created a black tech company in order to help young students excel in math and science. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. Folks, House impeachment managers argue today that former President Donald Trump began grooming his MAGA supporters months before the horrific, horrific events that took place at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. During their presentation, the managers used tweets and recall speeches where Trump assured his cavalry that the election was stolen and the results were fraudulent. Representative Joe Negase used direct quotes from rioters who said they were there to kill members of Congress and that they were following the president's Orders. Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett introduced security footage that had never been seen before, depicting the chaos Speaker Nancy Pelosi, former, uh, Vice President Pence, and other members of Congress had to endure. Watch this. Now, some have said that President Trump's remarks, his speech on January 6th, was just a speech. Well, let me ask you this. When in our history has a speech led thousands of people to storm our nation's capital with weapons, to scale the walls, break windows, kill a Capitol police officer. This was not just a speech. It didn't just happen. And as you evaluate the facts that we present to you, it will become clear exactly where that mob came from. Because here's the thing, President Trump's words, as you'll see on January 6th, in that speech, just like the mob's actions were carefully chosen, those words had a very specific meaning to that crowd. And how do we know this? Because in the weeks prior to, during, and after the election, he used the same words over and over and over again. You will hear over and over three things. You can see them on the screens. First, what lead manager Raskin referred to as the big lie, that the election was stolen, full of fraud, rigged. You will hear over and over him using that lie to urge his supporters to never concede and stop the steal. It's the only way we can be, it's the only way we can lose, in my opinion, is massive fraud. We all know what happened after that. 
He lost. He lost the election. But remember, he had that no-lose scenario that I referenced earlier. He told his base that the election was stolen, as he had forecasted. And then he told them, your election has been stolen, but you cannot concede. You must stop the steal. You can't let another person steal that election from you. All over the country, people are together in holding up signs, stop the steal. The Democrats are trying to steal the White House. You cannot let them. You just can't let them. Now, while he's inciting his supporters, he's also simultaneously doing everything he possibly can to overturn the election. First, he begins with the courts, a legitimate avenue, legitimate avenue to challenge the election. But he ignores all of their adverse rulings when all of his claims are thrown out. Then he moves on to trying to pressure state election officials to block the election results for his opponent, even though he'd lost in their states. You'll hear my fellow managers discuss that in detail. Then he tries to threaten state election officials to actually change the votes, to make him the winner even threatening criminal penalties if they refused. Here today do not want to see our election victory stolen. There's never been anything like this. It's a pure theft in American history. Everybody knows it. Make no mistake, this election was stolen from you, from me, and from the country. Now, of course, each of you heard those words before. So had the crowd. The president had spent months telling his supporters that the election had been stolen and, stolen. and he used this speech to incite them further, to inflame them, to stop the steal, to stop the certification of the election results. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. We must stop the steal. Finally, the president used this speech as a call to arms. It was not rhetorical. Some of his supporters had been primed for this over many months. As you'll learn, days before this speech, as lead manager Raskin noted, there were vast reports across all major media outlets that thousands of people would be armed, that they'd be violent. You'll learn that Capitol Police and the FBI reported in the days leading up to the attack that thousands in the crowd would be targeting the Capitol specifically, that they had arrested people with guns the night before the attack on weapons charges. And this is what our Commander-in-Chief said to the crowd in the face of those warnings right before they came here. We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. Not going to let it happen. 
but because they believed that they were following his orders. They said so. following my president. I thought I was following what we were called to do. President Trump requested that we be in D.C. on the 6th. You heard it from them. They were doing what he wanted them to do. They wouldn't have listened to you, to me, to the Vice President of the United States, who they were attacking. They didn't stop in the face of law enforcement, police officers fighting for their lives to stop them. They were following the President. He alone, our Commander-in-Chief, had the power to stop him. And he didn't. Five people lost their lives on that terrible, tragic day. A woman was shot dead 50 feet from where we later certified the election results. And for those who question just how bad it was, criminal complaints recently unsealed by the Department of Justice are more than revealing. You'll see one of these documents on the screen. In the charging affidavit of one of the leaders of the Proud Boys, we learned that members of this group said, I'm going to quote, they would have killed Mike Pence if given the chance. In another, we learned of a tweet in real time while they were in the building stating, we broke into the Capitol. We got inside. We did our part. We were looking for Nancy Pelosi to shoot her in the frickin' brain, but we didn't find her. And for anyone who suggests otherwise, these defendants themselves have told you exactly why they were here. You'll see this in the trial, that in the halls of the Capitol, on social media, in news interviews, and in charging documents, they confirm they were following the president's orders. Folks, the brutal breakdown of what took place uh, was shown by Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett as she unveiled never-before-seen footage of what took place inside the Capitol, including security footage from the government. Watch this. The video is from the west front of the Capitol on the Senate side, the side facing the White House. Watch the red dot, which moves up the lower steps of the Capitol indicating the approximate location of the rioters as they surge past the police.
other officers waiting down the hall. The wider scene carrying a baseball bat in this video is the same one we saw moments ago breaching the window on the first floor. While all of this was going on, Vice President Pence was still in the room near the Senate chamber. It was not until 2.26 that he was evacuated to a secure location. This next security video shows that evacuation. His movements are depicted by the orange dot in our model. The red and blue dots represents the location where the mob and Officer Goodman were, and where Officer Goodman led the mob away from the chamber just moments ago. You can see Vice President Pence and his family quickly move down the stairs. The Vice President turns around briefly as he's headed down. As Pence was being evacuated, rioters started to spread throughout the Capitol. Those inside helped other rioters break in through doors in several locations around this entire building. And the mob was looking for Vice President Pence because of his patriotism, because the Vice President had refused to do what the President demand and overturn the election results. Speaker Pelosi's staff heeded the call to shelter in place. On our model, you can see the riders in the rotunda in red and the speaker's office again in orange. So this is a security video, so there is no sound. As you can see here, the staff moves from their offices through the halls and then enters a door on the right-hand side. That's the outer door of a conference room, which also has an inner door that they barricaded with furniture. The staff then hid under a conference room table in that inner room. This is the last staffer going in and then barricading themselves inside of the inner office. After just seven minutes of them barricading themselves and the last staffer entering the door on the right, a group of rioters entered the hallway outside. And once inside, the rioters have free reign in the Speaker of the House's offices. In this security video, pay attention to the door that we saw those staffers leading into and going into. One of the riders you can see is throwing his body against the door three times until he breaks open that outer door. Luckily, when faced with the inner door, he moves on. Trump's mob ransacked the Speaker of the House's office. They terrorized her staff. Again, that is a mob that was sent by the President of the United States to stop the certification of an election. The Vice President, the Speaker of the House, the first and second in line to the presidency, were performing their 
constitutional duties presiding over the election certification, and they were put in danger because President Trump put his own desires, his own need for power over his duty to the Constitution and our democratic process. President Trump put a target on their backs and his mob broke into the Capitol to hunt them down. Folks, uh, chilling, chilling. Let's break this thing down with our panel. Uh, certainly glad to have everybody here. Robert Patillo, of course, uh, Rainbow Coalition Peach Tree Street Project there in Atlanta. Monique Presley, lawyer, crisis manager, and as well as Mustafa Santiago Ali, of course, uh, of course, formerly with the EPA as well. Let's, uh, Robert, um, let's go through this. Um, this, look. If, uh, if you're Donald Trump, if this was a real trial, uh, the jury could probably uh, go in the room, take a seat, go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, come back, convict this fool in five minutes, come out, get the decision, and be home in time uh, uh, to, uh, to watch their favorite television show. It is abundantly, it is clear cut. There is no denying what Donald Trump did. What this exposes is the shamefulness and how despicable the Republican Party is in that 44 senators. Senator Lindsey Graham has already said, he's called Trump and said, don't worry about it, you're gonna be cleared. What they're basically saying is, there is nothing a president can do that warrants being convicted. He can literally lead an insurrection and they're perfectly fine with it as long as there's an R in front of his name. Well, well, you're right, and it opens up a very weird legal situation where uh, the more evidence that comes out, the you know, I was sitting there, I think I watched every single minute of the coverage today, uh, and much like everyone else, I realized that this is this was far more significant than even the general public understood, seeing how close those murderers were, uh, the lynch mob was to Senator Romney and to getting into the chambers and so on and so forth. And so the question is for the uh, president's defense team, do you agree to the impeachment in exchange for an immunity? deal. And what, and what I mean by that is, do, do you plead to these charges at this point? Because as a, as a defense attorney, if I solve this mountain of evidence rolling in before I even do my opening arguments, uh, basically what the Senate is giving them the, uh, is opening the door for is either <clears throat> the District of Columbia or the uh, Justice Department to prosecute President Trump in his individual capacity as they're making this argument that he's an individual citizen, that he should not, the entire argument from yesterday, yesterday about the constitutionality about uh, prosecuting a former president. If your argument is that he should not be subject to the Article One, Section Two authority of Congress, then you're kicking it over to the court system, which opens up opens it up for the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland as the Attorney General to prosecute Trump using all the same evidence that was used at this impeachment trial. And the penalties for a felony conviction on federal charges are far worse than the penalty for being convicted by the Senate. So I do have to wonder at this point: Will the President's counsel uh, inform him that things could be a lot worse? Fonnie Willis, the new district attorney here in Fulton County in Atlanta, is also opening up a criminal investigation to President Trump uh, over the call that he made to the attorney, uh, to the secretary of state here. So there are many criminal charges that are coming down the lines, and maybe it's time for Trump's team to pull that uh, that ejection seat button and figure out if they can make a deal to save him from jail. Forget about the whole not being able to run for office thing. At this point, he needs to be worried about you know spending the next five to ten years behind bars. 
Bottom line, Monique, uh, what the Democrat, Democrats are methodically exposing. They are exposing the sheer insanity of Republicans to say, this is really no big deal. This is, you know, for, for, for Tucker Carlson last night, this is just a waste of time. I mean, they, they are flippantly dismissing this. When you hear Congressman uh, Swalwell say he walked it off, they were 58 steps away from where the rioters were. Mitt Romney, Eugene Goodman is saying, no, go this way. Romney was walking to these folks to hear the audio of them saying, where's Nancy? Where's Pence? Them saying, we're going to kill them. I mean, you're watching and listening to that and you're going, my God. Yes, well, obviously. At one point, I think I, I just texted you and said, this is jarring. Um, and that's all that I could say about it. And I've, I've been around a while and I've seen lots of things. Uh, but, it, well, let me get some things out first. Good job, um, brava Speaker Pelosi, on once again assembling a dynamic, stellar, brilliant, prepared, experienced, learned team of lawyers. Because these are some trial lawyers we're looking at who know what it means to try a case and try it to win. And you can tell they went deep into their reserves in order to spend the money, do the work, burn the midnight oil, to take advantage of all of the forms of evidence that would make the most sense for a trial of this sort. So for instance, you, know, you can have all different kinds of evidence at a trial, real evidence, demonstrable evidence, demonstrative evidence. Um, you can use technical skills for the evidence. Well, this is largely video, but video that in a regular trial would be considered demonstrative really here is real meaning you feel it you you hear it you can almost touch it it's it's better than if they had the taser in the room that they circle and show the guy with his feet kicked up on Speaker Pelosi's desks. It's better than uh, if we could see the metal bat actually in the Capitol as they're presenting the trial because they're using graphics, they're using specially created uh, digital examples in order to track what the insurgents were doing. And it is just very, very well done. I hope that people who are watching see this and understand the difference between what they're seeing now and that hot mess of a display that they saw from General Castor uh, and, and his sidekick shown yesterday, because that's that's not trial lawyering. And I don't I don't know what any of that was even about. I, I don't have anything else to say about it. Um, but what we're seeing is excellent. What they have to do now, though, is make sure that in all the excellence of it, we just don't know the horrors of what happened that day. Nobody can argue that. And especially after we've seen all of this evidence, forget about it. To stand and say it wasn't a big deal. And these jurors know full well what it was because they lived through it. But we got to go from there to connect the dots that make it such that former President Trump is responsible uh, and that's very different than if it was you, Roland, who was up at the microphone, or if it was Robert, or or if it was me. What I need to hear from them is, because he was the commander-in-chief, 
And as they said for a little bit this morning, he stopped being commander in chief, turned into insider in chief. That's fine. But he held the powerful, most powerful office in the land. And they need that in order to prove up that people with their own will, with their own decision making, with their own ability to decide to commit crimes or to work in concert to commit them, were only doing it because they were told to and that the person who told them to do it is ultimately responsible. And that's a legal hurdle. And that's a very different legal hurdle than if it was just, you know, a normal citizen. So I, I hear what Robert is saying. I don't necessarily agree. I don't know why, um, as a prosecutor in, in D.C., I would give up my opportunity to try him. I don't, I don't know why I would do that negotiating, because if I bring forward my case and end up getting a settlement, he can't run for president anyway, because now <laughs> he's a convicted felon. So... No, I'm going to keep all my bites at this apple. No, no, no. He's going to stand trial, and he's going to stand trial, and then he's going to stand trial. He's just going to keep standing trial. The Georgia, thing, New York, D.C., you name it. And, and I think that that's critically important, uh, Mustafa, because he needs to pay. Every single legal um, effort, whether it is in New York by uh, Tish James, whether it is uh, the D.A. there in Georgia, every single one, he needs to pay. And the people who were involved in this insurrection, they all need to go to prison. Because if you don't, what you're saying is you can go even further and then we might think about penalizing you. What's further? Literally holding members of Congress hostage? Is it, I mean, that's literally what's next. That, that's the next step. And that's why these Republicans are so shameful. And I'm telling you right now, my position is, is this is very simple. If any Republican votes to acquit Donald Trump, they have completely, they are basically dead to me. I don't want to hear anything from any of them on any topic. I'm not trying to unify with any of them. I'm not trying to negotiate with any of them. If members of the media had any guts, they would actually say, if you are a Republican and after this display, you vote to, to acquit him, you're not welcome on our Sunday morning shows. You're not going to be provided a platform. This is, these people literally are saying, we will suck up to Donald Trump so much that we will let this man get away with this under the guise of, oh, we just think this is unconstitutional. He's a private citizen. This has just gone a little too far. I mean, yeah, it's most definitely gone far enough. The, you know, those folks, our Republican brothers and sisters who went through this and experienced it also, and, and that evening when they went back home, you know, if they had family that was in the area or they got on the phone and called them, you know, they have to remember that they literally almost lost their lives, that Donald Trump is willing to sacrifice anyone for his agenda. And he's been doing it throughout his four years that he was in office. You saw it time and time and time again. And he realized that he was a Pied Piper, that he could create chaos in situations when he wanted to deflect or when he wanted folks to do something, um, that he could, you know, create pain, could create death. And we saw death both in this instance, but we've seen death throughout the coronavirus and many of the other actions that he's done. So folks have to add this up, the totality of this, and I understand they have to stay focused on the set of charges um, that are in front of them. 
But if someone is willing to sacrifice you just so that they think that they could get a shot at being, uh, continue to be the president, even though all of the cases, what was it, 61 cases, I believe, and they lost 60 uh, of the 61 cases that, you know, all of the respective judges said, you know, there is no, uh, you know, foul play that's going on in, the, uh, in relationship to voting. These folks were, were really willing to take your life because of what he said. So if you're willing to sign off on that, then, you know, not only are you failing that oath that you took, you're failing your families. You're failing many of the communities where you come from um, as well. So he has to be convicted because if he doesn't, it says something about our democracy and our country. And it also says something about the, these individuals who have to go because they're placing you know, their own sets of, of needs above, uh, above our country. So um, we'll see how it all plays out. But, you know, it's very clear that he has to go, that he has to be convicted. And as Monique said, there is a laundry list of other cases uh, on the state level that, you know, people have very, very strong cases against him. And part of the, part of the problem here um, is, frankly, unlike, uh, unlike other impeachment hearings. National media is sort of like, yeah, we'll cover some of it, not all of it. Uh, it's being covered some on cable news right now. Uh, let's go live to the United States Senate right now just to get a peek of what is being discussed by the House impeachment managers. Picked up your phone and tried to reach somebody at the White House to ask for help. This wasn't partisan politics. These were Americans from all sides trying to force our commander in chief to protect and defend our country. He was required to do that. Now, the extent of how many people tried to reach the president to get him to act is not known. But what is clear, what we know without any doubt, is that from the very beginning, the people around Donald Trump lobbied him to take command. What's also clear is what Donald Trump, our commander-in-chief, did in those initial hours to protect us. Nothing. Not a thing. He knew it was happening. The attack was on TV. We know, all know that President Trump had the power to stop these attacks. He was our commander in chief. He had the power to assess the security situation, send backup, send help. He also had incited this violent attack. They were listening to him. He could have commanded them to leave. But he didn't. The first critical hour and a half of this bloody attack, Donald Trump tweeted his rally speech and did nothing else. And we know why. We know his state of mind that prompted his utter, complete refusal to defend us. It was reported by those around him. The president, as reported by sources, at the time was delighted. As he watched the violence unfold on television, President Trump was reportedly, and I quote, borderline enthusiastic because it meant the certification was being derailed, end quote. Senator Ben Sass relayed a conversation with senior White House officials that President Trump was, quote, walking around the White House, confused about why other people on his team weren't as excited as he was, end quote. Trump's reaction to this attack reportedly genuinely freaked people out. I understand why. 
We just suffered a very serious attack, attack on our country. And we saw it, and the people around him knew it. But when Donald Trump saw it, he was delighted. Now, what President Trump did next confirms why he was so delighted, why he wanted this. Because it shows that his singular focus that day, the day we were attacked, was not protecting us, was not protecting you, was not protecting the Capitol. It was stopping the certification of the election results. The evidence is clear. Shortly after 2 p.m., as the siege was fully underway, then-President Trump made a call. This is the first call that we are aware he made to anyone inside the Capitol during the attack. Didn't call the Vice President to ask how he could help defend the Capitol. Didn't call the next two in line to the succession of the presidency to check on their safety or well-being. Instead, he attempted to call Senator Tuberville. He dialed Senator Lee by accident. Senator Lee describes it. He had just ended a prayer with his colleagues here in the Senate chamber. And the phone rang. It was Donald Trump. And how Senator Lee explains it is that, he, that the phone call goes something like this. Hey, Tommy, uh, Trump asks. And uh, Senator Lee says, this isn't Tommy. And he hands the phone to Senator Tuberville. Senator Lee then confirmed that he stood by as Senator Tuberville and President Trump spoke on the phone. And on that call, Donald Trump reportedly asked Senator Tuberville to make additional objections to the certification process. That's why he called. Now, let's be clear, at roughly 2 p.m., when Donald Trump was walking around the White House, watching the TV delighted, and spent five to 10 minutes talking to Senator Tuberville, urging him to delay the election results, this is what was happening in the Capitol. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. You saw Senator Langford stop speaking and leave uh, the floor quickly in that clip because the insurgents had broken through uh, the barricades and had entered the building. And as these armed insurrectionists banged on the doors, members of Congress were told to put on their gas masks, to put bags over their heads for safety and prepare to evacuate. And Donald Trump was calling. This is why this is why this is critically important um, right here. And this is why this is a strange, strange, not real trial, Monique. You see him standing there saying Donald Trump called Tommy Tuberville, who's sitting his ass in the chamber. If this was a trial, you would say, we have a witness. They showed the tweets from Kevin, the story from Kevin McCarthy. They would have said, we call Kevin McCarthy as a witness. Republicans jail, oh, if you dare call witnesses, we're going to call our own. We're going to call Vice President Kamala Harris. We're going to call, which was also stupid. But imagine a person who's sitting there who can confirm, yes, he, he did call me, and he called me and didn't want to talk about what was happening. He wanted me to further delay it. 
He's literally sitting there. He's one of the jurors. So a witness is one of the jurors. Well, well, no. Every juror is a witness. Right, right. I'm, but, 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 all, I'm, but, I'm, the, but I'm All the lawyers are witnesses. Right, but I'm, but I'm saying, but, but specifically, the argument he's laying out, Trump calls Tuberville, and Tuberville is sitting right there. Of course, <laughs> but, but the thing is, they're not pumped into not calling him. They know it's a waste of time because you put any of them on the stand, you get more information. And that's the assessment that a trial lawyer makes all the time. You may have a witness list that has 72 people on it. You may call six because you want witnesses where you know you're going to get the stuff you do want, especially if you're calling them. I can't do nothing about what those other folks call. I got a cross-examination waiting for them. I'll do the best I can. I'll object during direct. But when it's my witness... I'm responsible if I call a witness and they get up there and act a plum fool. And you are guaranteed that as a House manager, if you call a GOP senator as a witness, you're going to get mouthfuls of things you don't want for every one little bite of what you do. So this is much more effective. And if it was a lie, they would object. They would file motions. No motions were filed after yesterday. None will be filed after tonight. That's the way that process works. So, yes, normally lawyers wouldn't be almost having a fight breaking down because they're fact witnesses in their own cases the way these house managers are. These are very special circumstances, but also, you know, there are no rules of evidence. This isn't a legal court of law. That's why it's important that they can make their decisions based on what they hear, whether it follows the federal rules of evidence right. or not. It's not required. Whether it's a criminal violation or not, it's not required. They can vote. They can vote their conscience. And that's the other thing that I want to say, all these constitutional arguments that, that the Republican senators are putting up, I just don't believe we should be here. I don't believe that this, this is constitutional to have an impeachment trial at, when a president is no longer in office. Boo. That ship sailed yesterday with a vote. Your obligation now is to be a trier of fact, to listen to the evidence, and to decide based on the evidence. If former President Trump uh, was wrongfully voted against and shouldn't be taken to trial, he has vehicles in order to object to that. Got it. He has a way of recourse. Robert, so they got to listen to these facts and vote. Robert, go ahead. Well, and, and particularly to Monique's point, let's realize that some of these uh, Congress people and senators are victims in the case. Some of them are victims and witnesses. Uh, some of them are accomplices who are there also, people like Ted Cruz and, uh, and Joe Hawley. And, and so, it's, of course, the, uh, this process is not going to be fair. Of course, the process is not going to be judicial. There are no federal rules of evidence, all those sorts of things. But uh, uh, circling back, I do think that what the House Democrat or what the House Democrats are doing, what the uh, managers are doing, are putting. Uh, uh, alley oop up there to every single prosecutor in this country that may need evidence. They're, uh, they're showing them that if there are some uh, some MAGA supporters in your hometown who are at the uh, who are at the Capitol, here is all the evidence you need to prosecute them, and particularly for President Trump, they're letting him know that look, Northern uh, uh, the Southern District of New York will be coming after you. The Department of Justice will be coming after you. Fulton County will be coming after you. Um, more than likely, there will be additional jurisdictions when we find out what other states Donald Trump made those sorts of phone calls. Will be coming after you. I think at this point it's a fait accompli that regardless of what the uh, GOP vote is on this, 
all we're doing is putting on record how many uh, United States senators would put the president above themselves, above the Constitution, above this country, above the rule of law. And so it's going to be very difficult for those people. If, if we aren't seeing 44 or 45 primary challengers uh, and then general election challengers coming up in the next couple of years in these Senate elections, I'll be very surprised because these senators are now on record and they'll either be uh, challenged from the far right, from the Trump wing of the party, or they'll get a Democratic challenger who will be so appalled by the way that they've conducted themselves that they'll have every reason to run against them. But, Robert, I, I, what I, I, are their I, I, constituents I, I, saying? Easy. They're saying, yay, Trump, yay. Well, no, but that I guess that's my point. We, I, I believe that senators in a situation like this, they've been elected, and so now they vote their conscience, right? But senators are saying that they have an obligation to vote along the lines of their constituency. So I don't know about all of these different challengers in those jurisdictions where the, the citizens they, they, are really like... Look, at the end of the day, Mustafa, they, this party is the Trump party. The Trump party is the Republican party. And here's the deal. If they show us they have no conscience, they have no integrity, they have no decency, well, then they have exposed who they are. And that's why I say they're dead to me. I don't want to hear anything from them. I don't want I don't, I, they, they, There's nothing they can say to me. There's absolutely nothing that they can say to me. I don't want to hear them talk about unity or can we all come together? The answer is no. They took the same oath that I took. So they make a decision. Um, if they're going to live up to that oath, if they're actually going to honor the Constitution, if they're going to honor democracy, and if they don't, then like you said, they're of no value. Simple as that. Got to go to a break, folks. When we come back, we will talk with uh, Mark Anthony Neal about um, uh, the death of, of course, the Supreme Mary Wilson and what he did with her uh, when it came to a uh, collection uh, that's there in Philadelphia. So we will uh, talk to him next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. You do know that there is not a piece of your life that government in some way does not involve. I, mean, I, I, I crack up with these conservatives who down, talk about down to your name, everything. Down to your name, everything. I mean, I, I mean, just if you if you actually sat down and said, okay, what part of my life? Let me try to find something in my life that government mm -hmm. in, in, in in does not have a part of. I can't think of a single thing. You can say, fine, they don't impact my marriage, which they do, because mm -hmm. you got to get that marriage license. Yep. From the birth to the tomb. And if you're going to be here in the United States of America, whether you like it or not, you got to know about it. You got to know its history. Because when somebody knows about you more than you know yourself, that's slavery. That's volunteer slavery. Yeah. So it's almost like double the education we got to pick up uh, mm -hmm. with, of what this place is all about, how it works, how it runs. I'm, I'm a firm believer being 112 countries that you got to think global and act local, but you better ACT act local. This is the case of America versus Donald J. Trump. Article one, incitement of insurrection. Donald John Trump engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors by inciting violence against the government of the United States. If you don't fight like hell, you're not gonna have a country anymore. There's a billion of us out there, and we are listening to Trump. Non-stop lies regarding election fraud the courts proved was non-existent. All I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes. The evidence is all there. 
for the world to see. This is not a vote of conscience. It's a vote for truth. Where do you stand, Senators? With Trump? With the truth? The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packard. Hello, I'm Bishop T.D. J. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered. Many folks are still reeling from the death of Supreme's founder, Mary Wilson. She passed away a couple days ago, the age of 76. Uh, today, I talked with uh, Otis Williams, who is one of the, uh, the last surviving original temptation. Uh, we will share that interview uh, with uh, him tomorrow. Uh, but um, uh, I, was, uh, I saw this post from uh, Mark Anthony Neal. He posted this here on Twitter. Uh, I was honored to spend some time with Mary Wilson when I helped curate Come See About Me, the Mary Wilson Supremes Collection, an exhibition of the iconic gowns worn by the Supremes and open uh, at the African American uh, Museum in 2013. It was like being around royalty. Of course, it is the nation's first museum dedicated to preserving culture, history, and art of African Americans. And of course, this that was the exhibit that took place when they opened in 2018, excuse me, in 2013. And so uh, he joins us right now. Uh, Mark, how you doing, man? Hey, what's up, Roland? Good to see you. Uh, looks like, first of all, it's like, a, I, I swear I saw you all weekend when I looked, looked at the, uh, the Netflix uh, remastered uh, documentary on the yeah. two deaths, deaths of Sam Cooke, uh, which was a really great documentary. And so glad to have you here. Uh, you talked about it was like being around royalty. How so? Yeah, I was only around her a couple of times. We had lunch, and and obviously when you know when the show opened and, and as we were planning for it. But you know, this is the thing. You know, the Supremes represented royalty to Black America for such a long time, and and many folks will say, will think of Diana Ross as being the essence of the Supremes, but it's Mary, really Mary Wilson, right? Because she was there when they were first the primates back in Detroit and the Brewster Douglas houses, you know, back in 1958, and and she was with the group until the the group ended in 1978, right? So she was always there. And, you know, she really embodied the message that, you know, folks could come up in the world, they could make a person into themselves, they could create a, an identity. Um, and she did that for the longest time, and it was representative of this idea of black glamour. And it was really Mary Wilson who understood the value of these Bob Mackey dresses that had been designed by the Supremes in the 1960s, many of them iconic. Um, and she understood the value of them and began to think of a way to take them around the country so other folks could see those gowns. And I was fortunate that Patricia Wilson Aiden, you know, asked me to come in and, and help curate the gowns back in 2013. And it, it was a marvelous show and, and marvelous exhibit and, and really a great opportunity to see the greatness of the Supremes. Also, um, I think, I mean, let's just, if B.B. King was the caretaker of the blues, in essence, the worldwide ambassador, um, the reason I think we still um, celebrate and pay such homage to the Supremes is because of Mary Wilson. I mean, when Diana Ross leaves, Flo, ba Flo Ballard dies, and sure, you had Sidney Bird's song, but... It was Mary Wilson who kept that thing alive. Then when the book came out, then she kept talking about them, making appearances. I mean, she was the caretaker of the legacy of the Supremes. 
Oh, there's no question about that. That that she was a person that really carried the bloodstained banner for what the Supremes represented, and, and why they were important to American society. I mean, first you know you think about her own memoir, but as recently as two years ago, you know she did a book that basically cataloged these wonderful gowns that they traveled around with and did these concerts, met with the Queen Mother back in 1968 in London. Uh, it, it was an amazing story for them to come up in the world the way that they did. And, you know, Diana Ross left the Supremes in 1969, 1970, um, and she created her own legacy. But it was really Mary Wilson's job, you know, really after Florence Ballard left the group and then, of course, died in 1976. It was her job to keep up that legacy. And I think that, uh, I mean, that, 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 I think that's really important um, because, look, um, historic acts can very easily uh, get uh, thrown into the dustbin. They can they can pretty much just get ignored and and then we sort of move on. Uh, and I mean, if you look at the Temptations, the reality is with Otis Williams still being one of the original Temptations, um, carrying forth that legacy. So when you still see them performing, still hear them, you still have a tie to that group because he was. Uh, he, he is still living and he is still active involved. Um, and uh, we'll talk, we'll share it tomorrow where I talked to him about what it meant to be the glue uh, that held them together. That's really what Mary Wilson also, also was. And the reason that's also important because black culture often gets um, overtaken by white culture. Someone sent me... Um, um, an item, uh, who said, someone sent me an item the other day. And, and um, this is a perfect example, since I'm going to tie Mary Wilson in with Sam Cooke. You might get a kick out of this, um, uh, Mark. Um, let me find the text someone sent me. Um, Variety posted a story that said, for black people, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come was the imagine of its time and today. <laughs> a change is gonna come came out in 64 imagine came out in 71 <laughs> maybe imagine is the a change is, is gonna come you see i mean you I mean you saw how that 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 yeah, that you know it's it's the same thing with with uh quest love's new movie you know that folks want to describe as as the black woodstock but you know what they did in that park in harlem in 1969 actually occurred six weeks before woodstock you know, if anything, Woodstock was a version of, of the Harlem Cultural Festival. Well, that's, that's why for me, I, it's like folks say, Josh Gibson's the Black Babe Ruth. No, he actually <laughs> was, be, be, he was before Babe. See, and that's what I, and, I, and I, I, I just think that, I think that part of our responsibility to me as the caretakers of our history uh, and as black journalists, as black professors, as black lawyers and doctors and black environmentalists, or whatever, is not allow blackness to somehow be diminished and become second to whiteness. We said, no, 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 no. We were the originators of that. Y'all then followed. We ain't about to follow y'all. I mean, that's the incredible part of the story, that, that Barry Gordy 
built this empire in Motown, basically, you know, pulling from the talent of black kids growing up in working class Detroit. I mean, again, the Supremes at one time or the other, all three of those original Supremes lived in the Brewster Douglas houses. You know, that was the first federally funded housing project in the United States. Um, you know, you go back to 19, 1930s and you see Eleanor Roosevelt cutting the ribbons to it. It was synonymous for what housing projects looked like. And the fact that they would come out of that and you got the Temptations coming out of that same space, Marvin Gaye later, um, the fact that they became quintessentially not only black culture, but what we think of as the best of black of American musical culture in the 1960s, right? You know, there's no Beyonce and Destiny's Child without the Supremes. Supremes were the first female group to have six straight number one records, to have a number one album. Uh, they did so many things, and the fact that they've been able to maintain that legacy, going back to how great Mary Wilson has been with this, to be able to maintain that legacy for so long when, you know, they weren't together to tour around the culture and talk about how great we were, we were the Supremes, you know, all of that is about the history of what they did, and it's still, you know, untouched, you know, 50 years later. As somebody just posted on my YouTube channel, Meryl Streep is the white Cicely Tyson. Um, <laughs> uh, that was uh, Abasaki. That was that was a good right there. Um, what I, uh, uh, Cheryl Lee Rapp talked about uh, Mary Wilson was uh, always fun loving, but also was a diva. Uh, was she quite particular with you in y'all in y'all meetings, or what she wanted was, to see done? You know, it was good because I always had the buffer of of Miss Aiden Wilson, who was the CEO of the. Of the museum at the time. Um, but, you know, I knew not to cross any lines, right? I'm sitting there <laughs> with Mary Wilson, right? I, I know where my place is. Yes, Miss Wilson, what do you need? Yes, Miss Wilson, we'll try to make that, make sure that gets done. Um, you know, when you have folks of that stature, you, you, you just try not to mess it up, right? You want to represent them in the best way that they can be represented. All right, Mark Anthony Neal, we certainly appreciate you sharing your thoughts uh, about uh, the passing of the legend, uh, Mary Wilson. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, folks, uh, tomorrow, we want y'all to tune in to Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, I will have my interview with Otis Wilson, the last surviving original temptation. Uh, it's an audio interview uh, that we did, and so, uh, but uh, you don't want to miss it. Uh, he shares some great things about growing up down the street from his longtime friend, uh, Mary Wilson, talks about uh, the Motown days. And remember in the movie, the movie The Temptations, when... The David Ruffin character said, Otis, ain't nobody buying tickets to see you. Did that actually happen in real life? Otis will give us the scoop. That's tomorrow right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Going to a break when we come back. We'll tell you about this strange case out of Louisiana. Young black boy found dead. For the longest, the cops had not arrested this white woman and her son, who they suspected had some involvement. She now has been arrested. We'll also hear from Simone Sanders, who will talk about the American Recovery Act and what it means for African-Americans. That is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. The U.S. uses more than half the world's health care resources, but we're ranked 43rd in the world for life expectancy. How did we get here? The political determinants of health include how we structure relationships, how we distribute resources, and how we administer power. What does this look like at the individual level? Take Jessica, for example. Jessica's 19.
Her dad relies on mental health and substance use programs, but when these programs get cut, he becomes too difficult to live with. She leaves home. The neighborhood Jessica can afford has no grocery stores, limited public transit, and limited health care. To save money, policymakers change the water source to a more polluted river. Jessica has a minimum wage job with no health insurance at a convenience store that offers free snacks while she works, which she takes advantage of because they're free. When Jessica becomes pregnant, she can't get health insurance because pregnancy is a pre-existing condition. And she doesn't realize that the salty, fatty snacks that she eats at work are bad for her baby. Jessica gets a ride to the closest clinic for a prenatal appointment, but the doctor is rushed and rude to her. She doesn't go back. Jessica develops preeclampsia and almost dies during her son's premature birth. He's born with cognitive defects because of poor diet, contaminated water source, and lack of access to prenatal care. As he grows up, Jessica learns that her school district doesn't have the resources to accommodate her son's special needs. He drops out after eighth grade and will repeat the cycle of poverty. Through Jessica's story, we begin to see how social determinants, environmental determinants, healthcare determinants, and behavioral health determinants take their toll on our lives. And Jessica's story shows us how political determinants supersede personal responsibility. Equity in our policies is a process and an outcome. Change comes when we can identify political champions at all levels and figure out how our most pressing issues align with their policies. For more actionable solutions to close the health gap, read The Political Determinants of Health by Daniel E. Dawes. I'm Bill Duke. This is Diallo Riddle, and you're watching Roland Martin, Unfiltered. Stay woke. Thirty-seven-year-old Janet Irvin is now facing charges in the Kwan Bobby Charles case. The 15-year-old boy was found dead in a sugarcane field last November. After investigators say Charles was last seen with Irvin and her 17-year-old son. According to the Iberia Parish Sheriff's Office, Irvin is facing charges of contributing to the, del the, the, the delinquency of a minor and failed to report a missing child. On October 30th, Irvin and her son picked up Charles outside of his father's home in Baldwin, Louisiana. Charles's parents said at the time they didn't know Irvin or her son and never consented to Charles leaving with them. Now, these charges come months after the family has been demanding Irvin be charged with Charles's disappearance. The Charles family says they believe law enforcement dragged their feet because Charles is black. Lawyers for the family issued a statement on Tuesday saying, quote, we will continue to fight, we will continue to advocate for Kawan's family, and we will work tirelessly in our pursuit of justice, transparency, and accountability. This is a, um, this is a very, very troublesome case, Monique. Yes. Um, we show, y'all show it again. I am going to, so let me, I, I, I got to pull it up, but let me warn our audience. Um, I'm going to show you the photo, but I'm warning folks. So I'm giving you about a 60 to 90 second head start. So I will literally show it in two minutes. Uh, but if you need to turn away, please do so. This young boy leaves 
Y'all roll the footage, please. This is what he looks like. You'll see in here what he looks like. But then I'm going to show you what it looked like when his body was found. And it never added up in this case. My problem here is when the cops initially, when they got the call, their, their position was, oh, he's probably at a football game. Based on nothing, like nothing, then all of a sudden it was different when his body was found. Uh, so, so she has not been charged with murder, but this, this is at least a start, Monique. Yeah, they're still not there, though, yet. This one, this one is sinister. And I, I don't know. I always, I always, my gut told me the family knew more than they were saying, but law enforcement to me is complicit in this. Um, and I just have had a feeling from the very beginning that a small circle of people knew exactly what happened and that some of them were in power and were not saying that was um, that is certainly the case. I, I believe uh, Robert as well because it just it just it made no sense whatsoever. And, and it reminds me a lot of the Kendrick uh, uh, Kendrick Johnson case here in Georgia, uh, where the community uh, is demanding justice, they're demanding outside prosecution, they're demanding investigation, and we have this good old boy system of, of police officers and prosecutors, which makes it very difficult to find justice, particularly in small towns in America, without uh, the ability to bring national attention to the case. Uh, as I often do, I like to substitute our uh, young black victim in this case for our fictional young white woman named Lily White, who's the same age, wearing a Girl Scout uniform or cheerleading uniform, uh, depending on the situation, what would the national response be if that was Lily White who was missing? Would the police just say she's probably at a football game and put no more thought into it? Would there be no more uh, national press attention on it? No, we know exactly what would have happened. Nancy Grace would have been down there. Anderson Cooper would be there. They would have helicopters, 24-hour coverage until they found out what happened. We have to do the same. This is why black media is so important. It's why black organizations are so important because the only way to shine that bright light on subject is to have people who care about it. And sunlight is the ultimate antiseptic, and the more we pay attention to this case, the more likely justice is uh, to be served. Um, and again, when we talk about uh, Mustafa, what is so strange about this, um, and again, so folks, this is the warning, uh, so please turn away if you like. On the left is Bobby Charles. On the right is how he was discovered. Teeth missing, knocked out, I'm sorry, folks, that is shades of Emmett Till. Something clearly nefarious happened here, and this boy and his family have not gotten justice, Mustafa. Yeah, first thing I thought of when I saw it was Emmett Till. You know, this just speaks to the disparities that we have in relationship with law enforcement. You know, everybody watches the first 48, and they understand, you know, that if folks don't get real focused real quick, um, that you're more than likely not going to find uh, whomever we think may have been murdered or, or assaulted. And we also know that when they said it themselves, when it comes to black boys, you know, he's probably at a football game instead of assuming that he had been, you know, um, taken away and, and getting the work done very quickly. So you got the two dynamics that are going on. You have this dehumanization of black boys and black girls um, and, and how they're viewed. Um, and then you also got the dynamics that go on with, unfortunately, with law enforcement, where uh, you know, there are some who don't take their job as serious when it comes to black and brown bodies um, and, and getting engaged and putting the full resources of their respective departments uh, behind the search. 
Uh, again, so well, folks, we're going to keep updating you. We did reach out to the family's attorney. Folks were under the weather, so we'll try to get them on as soon as we can. Let's stay in Louisiana. We're on Monday. The Louisiana State Police arrested four state troopers accused of using excessive force, deactivating their body-worn cameras and making false statements about two arrests in 2019 and 2020. A month-long investigation found three of the four troopers arrested on Monday include 26-year-old George Harper, 28-year-old Dakota DeMoss, and 30-year-old Jacob Brown. All three troopers face state charges of simple battery and malfeasance in office in connection with a police chase that took place in May 2020. The other officer, 34-year-old Randall Dickerson, is accused of using, using excessive force, deactivating his body camera, and making false statements while handcuffing a driver in 2019. The newly appointed state police superintendent, Colonel Lamar Davis, said the use of force in both instances was, quote, inexcusable and tarnishes the exemplary work of our dedicated men and women. He told troopers in an email obtained by the Associated Press, quote, Although we once again face a situation that will undoubtedly bring negative public attention to our agency, we must remain committed to holding each other accountable. That's what I'm talking about, Mustafa, when I keep saying when cops turn off those cameras. This is why I say, bottom line is, the moment you uh, sign on, before you walk out that door, you turn it on, it should never come off again. If it comes off, you turn it off, you should be terminated. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that's the only way that we're going to be able to document what's going on. You know, whether it is, you know, harassment um, or some of these other more egregious behaviors that we unfortunately find law enforcement doing. And, and, and even when we are able to document what's going on, it still makes it really tough for folks like Robert and Monique and many others uh, to be able to get justice for, you know, their clients. So, you know, we just got to continue to push on that. And the accountability thing in that statement is necessary. But, you know, they have no problem when it comes to policing in our communities and making sure there's accountability. But, of course, we know that the police unions continue to push back and fight when we're asking for accountability to also be on that side of the ledger. Folks, I always love talking about community accountability, Robert, but they really hate it when you talk about it involving cops. Well, this is why I, I uh, still say that if you have a case where a body cam is deactivated, the case should be thrown out. Uh, give Take away the incentive to uh, have rent-seeking behavior. Take away the incentive that officers will have to turn off those body cams, because just like with anything else, I, um, let's put it this way. If you had a camera in your house, and then you notice every time you go out of town, your spouse turns the camera off, after about the third or fourth time, you're going to be wondering why they turned the camera off. Uh, same thing with these officers. Why are you turning the camera off if you are confident in the policing that you have done? And uh, quite frankly, as we've said, the technology exists today to have tamper-proof body cameras, which record directly to a cloud um, that will that are tamper-proof, where you cannot turn them on and off. That can stream 24 hours a day. That are saved on an external server. So there's no real reason for this not to be taking place already. And we have to push for federal funding and federal guidelines, which say that if you do not institute these policies with your uh, state and local police forces, do you lose access to federal funding for weapons and trainings and and other uh, things that the federal government funds for local police departments? This is where all that military equipment keeps coming from. So it can be addressed on the federal level, but it does need, uh, but we do need to push for changes on the state and local level where we have the most influence for our public officials. Well, I'm certainly glad to see that the actual state troopers arrested their own. Uh, and then you have a superintendent there, Monique, who is demanding accountability. Absolutely. That to me is, is, the headline for this story that we've got a department that knows 
this is going to bring a negative press. We're, we're in it. <laughs> um, and, and it should, because these are the things that need to be reported. But doing the right thing anyway, and not just the, the body cam, the, the, to me, more important part is these were four that had excessive force violations uh, that needed to be prosecuted. So these are humans who should not have been assaulted and battered by police officers that are now are going to get some form of justice. And these officers, perfectly will never be able to be a part of law enforcement again. Folks, let's talk now about the American Recovery Plan. President Joe Biden is, uh, wants, is pushing Congress do all they can to uh, help those who are in need. Now, granted, they act like they can't do two things at one time. The House is in session, but the Senate, of course, is preoccupied with Donald Trump's impeachment. Had a conversation with uh, Simone Sanders, who works with Vice President Kamala Harris's office, about what this means for African-Americans. All right, Simone, th this has been, this bill is critical. We've lost 41% of our Black-owned businesses uh, African-Americans uh, are greatly impacted uh, by COVID. We talk about the deaths as well. Um, what will this American Rescue Plan do specifically for African-Americans? Well, thank you so much for having me uh, today, Roland. Just last week, the vice president sat down with the secretary of the Treasury and members of the Black Chamber from across the country to discuss this very issue. The reality is this. Um, folks need relief right now. Black businesses, businesses all across this country cannot afford to wait. So this American Rescue Plan is really a relief package, a survival plan, if you will, for businesses across this country. Uh, from November to December, 82,000 Black women uh, were moved out of the workforce. 82,000 Black women. As you know, before the pandemic, they were the large, fastest-growing entrepreneurs. And so this plan provides relief to those Black businesses by ensuring that the, the next go around, uh, when those checks are going out, those PPP checks, black businesses and those businesses who are really in need are pushed to the front of the line. As the last time they were at the back of the line, this in, this bill ensures and will work on um, CDFIs, which I know for some folks sounds like a, some very complicated term, but it means a lot to black businesses and small businesses across the board. And that's something that Secretary Yellen and the vice president will be working together on. Uh, the, you know, I could go on, Roland, but the reality is this, that we know that in businesses across the country, communities across the country have all been affected by COVID, but we know the effect has not been equal. We know black businesses, the African-American community, uh, communities of color have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic, by this virus, both the economic uh, crisis and the public health crisis. And the American Rescue Plan is a plan that seeks to provide some relief uh, for this crisis? Obviously, one of the issues that is significant is the $15 an hour living wage. Uh, and there's been lots of back and forth on that. Uh, then, you know, folks are also talking about means testing when it comes to uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the stimulus checks as well, the assistance there. Uh, and so folks keep saying, are Democrats going to do what is necessary to thwart uh, Republican efforts to, to stymie this and get this done? Well, Roland, I can tell you this. The president has been extremely clear about where he stands on both the $15 minimum wage and getting relief to families via uh, these relief payments, as we're calling them, those direct payments to families. 
When it comes to the minimum wage, uh, the president believes there's something that we have to do and that we have to work to con with Congress to do, which is why uh, the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage, was in the plan um, that we sent to the Hill, was in that original package for the American Rescue Plan. When it comes to these relief payments and these direct checks, the president and vice president believe that we have to finish the job on the $2,000. Uh, what Congress did in December is not enough. $1,600 is just, pardon me, $600 was just a down payment. And $1,400 will finish that job. Now, the, the president and vice president also believe that this relief needs to go to the families and individuals that need it most, which means if you are making more than $300,000, upwards of $250,000, you are not someone uh, that this relief will be targeted to. So the president uh, is committed to getting this done. When we think about, um, again, what is happening across this country, uh, it was for a lot of people, it is the illusion that things are better. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump often would focus on uh, the stock market. Other folks would say, oh, no, that's an indication uh, that things are going well. But, but there are so many people uh, who, who, are, who are still hurting, uh, who are still being impacted. Uh, then you have uh, folks uh, out there like Larry Summer, Sumners, and then you have um, uh, former Senator Phil Graham who are saying, no, this bill is just too big. How, how does the House respond to this notion that this bill is simply too big and it could hurt the economy? Roland, the reality is that 11 million people are out of work. 15 million folks are struggling to pay their rent. They're behind on their rental payments. 12 million children are struggling with food insecurity. Folks are standing in food lines right now. The, the question on the table isn't, uh, can we do too much? The question on the table is, can we afford to do too little? And President Biden and Vice President Harris believe that we can't do too little. We have to ensure that the relief that is handed down to families and communities across this country uh, is sufficient. And that is exactly what the American Rescue Plan does. You know, the president did not de design this package with a number in mind. He designed it with uh, the need of the American people in mind. So we believe that this, this package matches the scale of relief that is needed. But we also believe that we need recovery, which is why in a few weeks' time, the president will lay out a plan for recovery for the American people, uh, for jobs. But first, we have to give some relief. And so that is what the American Rescue Plan does. And the president and vice president are currently working with Congress to get this passed and get that relief to the American people that greatly need it in this urgent time. Obviously, President Biden is going to be addressing Congress uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and so when you talk about that, 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 that longer plan, I mean, this really is uh, what is immediate and short term. Uh, and that next phase is, is critically important. And one of the things that, that I have been really locked and loaded on uh, and focused on, on on my show has also been to ensure that African-Americans are able uh, to access the billions being spent annually by the federal government. Uh, the study was done a couple of years ago showing when it comes to uh, media advertising the federal government, $5 billion spent over five years. Black media gets $51 million. When we see what's happening in the Department of Defense when it comes to contracts as well. Uh, and so uh, when you talk about that long-term plan as well, uh, you know, will that also include massive changes 
to the federal government to say, wait a minute, here's the federal government spending these billions of dollars. Uh, how do we ensure African-Americans are getting 10, 15 uh, percent of these contracts? Because that also speaks to when you when you were able to uh, fund uh, black businesses, they're hiring African-Americans. They have children. They have other family members. And so it's also building, um, building up black businesses and building up black wealth through uh, access to the federal government. But right now, we've been you know, cut off uh, in, in a huge, huge way. So, Roland, this is something, uh, this question of equity, that's what I hear you saying, talking about equity as it relates to uh, the, the federal government, but really the entire administration's approach. And this is something that is of keen importance to the, the president and the vice president, uh, so important, in fact, that the president signed an executive order on day one on this very issue, uh, instituting a whole-of-government approach to addressing racial equity. A crisis of racial injustice is one of the um, key four crises that the president and vice president, in advance of being sworn in, laid out throughout the course of the general election campaign and all throughout the transition. And when we talk about racial injustice, oftentimes people go directly to criminal justice reform. And while that is just a part of it, there, there is something here, uh, another piece of it, where we talk about economic uh, injustice, economic equity. And if the president were sitting here right now, he would tell you that if we only address criminal justice reform, we are only addressing part of the issue. We have to address uh, the economic inequalities as well. And so this whole of government approach that the the, the president signed uh, his directive on is really saying that, look, it's not on one person or one department or one agency to ensure that uh, the administration is conducting itself in an equitable way across the board. It is on all of us. And so this approach will really be, uh, this work will be anchored in the Domestic Policy Council, led by uh, Ambassador Susan Rice, who is battle-tested, crisis-tested, and uh, the president and vice president couldn't think of a better person to take this issue and effort on. And so, yes, contracting and procurement, um, as you mentioned, will be part of that effort. And we will hopefully have some more on this very soon to share and read out. All right, then. Uh, Simone Sanders, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Look forward to having you back. And uh, can't wait when we can also uh, get a chance to sit down and chat with the uh, vice president and the president about these critically important issues for African-Americans. Absolutely. Noted, Roland. We will see you soon. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, y'all see, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and get that request in while we there. Uh, let's go back to our panel here, Mustafa. I want to talk. I want to start with you. Uh, we talk about the uh, that whole issue of race equity. Uh, the, the thing, you know, I, I I always get a kick out of these people, uh, these these wannabes out here uh, who don't know nothing about the law. Uh, I got some fools out there doing little videos talking about, oh, look at this. Biden did this specifically for the Asians, not realizing that actually it dealt with the issue of anti-discrimination and the Department of Justice. And so you have leeway there. But when you start talking about uh, contracts, uh, the Supreme Court Bakke decision is, is, is there when it comes to how you can use race uh, specifically uh, in contracts. But, you know, uh, excuse me, because I actually read a book or two or a thousand, and some folks don't. But I do think it's important for us when we're having the conversation, what we should be doing is saying, how far can we go when it comes to uh, the issue of race and driving race equity? Because you have to figure out the precise language to use so it, so it withstands uh, court scrutiny and doesn't get shut down. Yeah, 
And, and if we don't do that, we're going to lose out on literally billions of dollars that could be going inside of our communities. First of all, let me just say that I appreciate uh, what the Biden administration is currently doing with a number of the various policies and executive orders that they put out there. Um, but I, and I also want them, and I've, you know, I've shared with those who, who I work with that, you know, equity and justice uh, have some similarities, but there are also some differences there in making sure that we are also addressing the past egregious actions that have happened that have actually disinvested and removed wealth from our communities. So uh, I appreciate um, you know, that they're focusing on black businesses and businesses in general. But we also got to understand that as we are getting these funds now in place for what's happening in this moment, there are a whole lot of folks who have lost businesses that we have to also address that um, to make sure that, you know, we can help to make them whole. When we're talking about $15 an hour uh, and, and the fight that's going on with that, which is ridiculous because we're talking about $32,000, a little less than $32,000 a year, that there are a number of other dynamics that go on, even if we can get folks to that $15 an hour. So we're going to push and fight um, to hopefully be able to make that happen. It should happen inside of the of this relief bill, um, because I have a feeling that if we take it to Capitol Hill, we may run into some real challenges there. But you raised an important part, Roland, is that this huge amount of money, we've always had a difficult time in getting a fair share of the percentages. And some of the cases that were there before, <laughs> created, you know, some of the challenges. But we now have $2 trillion that's a part of the climate economy, and 40% of that is supposed to go to communities of color. The question is, how do we help people to get prepared to be able to fully compete for those dollars and then also build the necessary criteria and so that, as many people have said, that they get a chance to move to the front of the line, especially since they're coming from communities that have been disinvested in. So that's the... You know, that's the dance that we have to do, but it means that a whole lot of people are going to have to stay engaged. You're going to have to work with people who understand policy and who understand how we can build the right criteria in there so that folks actually have a fair shake uh, in many of these dollars that are coming. Because if you don't, if you don't, there are others who are already positioning themselves to get these resources. And if you understand how the federal government and down to the states works, if you hit bottlenecks, then folks will redirect those dollars to places of least resistance, if you will. Um, so we've got to make sure that we really understand this game um, and, and that we are being educated and getting activated to make sure you get those resources. So the, the, see, the thing for me, Robert, that, that really bugs me the most is when you have uh, folk who don't know what the hell they're talking about popping off, and then you got other people who are also even more less informed who don't know what the hell they're talking about. And so you got black folks running around. Well, why can't they? They should do this and do that. So you, you think all of a sudden you, you, you the brightest bulb in the room and your ass just the one figured that out, that if uh, it could be done, uh, a very specific remedy like that could, what didn't happen before. Like you were so good that so you just so brilliant that you that is your idea. Well, well, just show, show me then how it can actually be done. Then, so that's how I challenge these ignorant folks out here who post their little videos on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, who actually don't know anything about the law and the limitations. And so you have to create ways. So that's one of the reasons why they, talk, they use disparate impact. That's one of the reasons why they use census tracts. That's one of the reasons when they say we can target things to zip codes. So there are ways that you have to uh, say race on the federal level where you can't do it explicitly, 
there are other ways around it. That's one of the challenges that folk have. And so when the Biden folks are saying this is what we're going to be pursuing when it comes to race equity, again, like, for instance, perfect example. You talk about uh, uh, access to capital. We hear that all the time. I argue that if you're the federal government and you are putting federal government money in banks, you should have a provision that say, in order for us to place the federal money that are in these banks, um, we are requiring said banks to provide credit loans uh, to businesses that receive federal contracts that might be in a disadvantaged category, or just simply say that require you to provide credit, lo credit lines to such businesses. Guess what? If you now are a black-owned business or a Latino-owned business or whatever, and now all of a sudden you have access to capital, and now because of that simple change, it now creates a credit line for you, that's not a race-specific remedy. That's a remedy where they even say if it's for companies less than $100 million in revenue or less than $50 million in revenue. There are ways for you to create those type of programs. That's called being smart within the law. Well, you're absolutely correct, and let's understand why it's so important to be able to draft legislation properly. Uh, many of the much of the legislation that came out of the 1960s and 70s that was meant to address um, to ameliorate issues of racial disparities because of the way the laws were drafted ended up helping other communities besides African Americans. One of the biggest beneficiaries of Title IX, for example, was uh, ended up being white women. One of the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action programs who were meant to integrate uh, many of the Ivy League schools, for example, ended up being Asian Americans who. Uh, vastly outpaced African-Americans in those schools. So when we talk about having these race-specific uh, uh, programs, we have to make sure that it's drafted properly so that it properly addresses the needs of the community. And also, as you said, that it doesn't get struck down by the court. If we look at the holding... <clears throat> And, and when, when the Supreme Court struck down Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, one of the issues that they brought up was the fact that the act was still using criteria set out in 1965 to address voting laws and, and voting issues in 2014. So you, we have to have legislation which is drafted, which is nimble enough, and that addresses all the needs, not just to maintain constitutional scrutiny now, but to affect the community that needs to be affected. Well, one more thing in your conversation with Sanders, we talked about the stimulus and people saying, or Republicans more so saying that it's too big and it could break the economy. That's not how any of this works anymore. They're talking about a pre-gold um, standard uh, form of governance and austerity model from the Chicago School under Friedman. If you look at Keynesian economics, which has been pro predominant throughout much of the 20th century and into the 21st century, with the IMS, the Inter International Monetary Fund, and most, um, uh, most su uh, supply-side uh, economists say, the bigger the stimulus, the better for bringing you out of a, uh, to prevent a recession, prevent a depression. If you look at the New Deal, the real reason the New Deal failed was it was not big enough. You needed World War II levels of spending to break you out of that negative economic cycle, which was in place from the night um, throughout the 1930s. So this idea of a stimulus being too big, we never talk about a tax cut being too big. Congress has never found a tax cut for billionaires that was too big for them. But oh Lord, if a poor person wants a sandwich, all of a sudden we got to start um, you know, pinching pennies and going into our pockets to see if we can find the money. Let's get rid of this idea that stimulating the economy can be too big because at the end of the day, all this money is imaginary anyway. So let's just give it to the people who need it. See, Monique, the thing for me is um, um, I, I do my best to try to ignore the grifters. The problem is when the grifters are purposely driving disinformation and misinformation to our people uh, and they think something can be done when it actually cannot. Uh, and what we have to understand is 
um, I don't spend my time going, um, well, do this. No, what I go is what can actually be done. What can be done, what can get passed, what can get implemented. See, everything that can be done don't require a press release. Everything that can be done don't require uh, a big old party. Sometimes you can do stuff and you ain't got to sit here and blast it out. You just go ahead and get it done. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the pieces here. And, and, and I think too many, you know, unfortunately, black people need to understand there's a reason they target us with disinformation. There is a reason. And it's even more shameful when our own people contribute to it. But that's part of the master plan. The plan is for the cancer to eat us from the inside out. That's always been the plan. We perish for the lack of knowledge. Ignorance is not bliss. Knowledge is power. So the only answer, truly, when we have people who are on the grift or the misinformation, disinformation campaign is the way that they earn their livelihood, whatever the case may be, you know, their, their particular um, politician does not get in office, so then it's scorched earth mentality and everything else has to die and everybody else is wrong and they just sit out here looking like petty betties nitpicking and not offering any solutions away with all of it i don't i don't have time for any of it or any of them the best resource to me is us in that we have the power to provide real time accurate information tools tips um ways of doing things so that our people can advance. So when you have interviews like the one you had with the lovely Simone Sanders tonight, hey, Simone, woo! Really? Yeah. Really? Really? Uh-huh. You knew it was coming. Win with Black women. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm true to this now. So when you have interviews like that on your very important substantive show, Roland Martin, then people can trust that because it's not a cakewalk. You're asking the right questions. You're not giving them a pass, but you're giving space for real answers. And that's what our folks need. And, and what they also need, what we all also need, like you just said a minute ago, you read a book or a thousand. I dare say you've read a book or 5,000. Leaders read. If you don't read, you will always depend on the people who do. So read for yourself. Whitehouse.gov or WH.gov. Read every single executive order. Know which ones say what. If you have questions, submit them. Submit them to, to people you can trust like Roland or submit them to the White House or submit them to whomever until you get answers. But read first. And, and read as much as you can. And don't feel shame about what, the, what things you don't understand. We're all in this together. And, and it's going to take all of us to get it done. And again, here's the whole deal. If you are following somebody and their time is spent talking about what I talk about, as opposed to actually talking to policymakers, you should stop following fools like that. Because here's the deal. I don't discuss them because they're not worth it. Too many of our people are getting bad information. Too many of our people 
are walking around think people telling you this can be done when it actually can't be done or they don't understand policy they don't understand how laws are made they don't understand how to even lobby and also last point um, if somebody who you follow is now trying to have an opinion on what the Biden administration should or shouldn't do and they the same punk asses who told you don't vote they can go to hell because if you follow somebody who told you not to vote their opinion right now don't mean a damn thing to me and it shouldn't mean anything to you and you sorry asses know who you are Folks, let's talk about Chicago. It's been nearly a year since schools were shut down uh, due to COVID-19. Yeah, I said it, Monique, but some students are slated to return to school tomorrow for the first, first in-person classes after the city's teachers union voted in favor of reopening agreement with Chicago public schools. Months of mulling over safety concerns, both parties were able to agree that the first and second close uh, vaccinations uh, will be provided for all employees and students will return in phases, beginning with pre-K and special education this week. Kindergarten, elementary, middle and high school students are scheduled to come back to school in March. Watch this. We are here to announce the very good news that our children will be returning to in-person learning this week. These past 11 months have been a whirlwind for our entire city pushing us to limits, not once, not twice, but countless times. We've lost jobs and we've lost loved ones. We grappled with the losing, the certainty and predictability of our lives and been left instead with instability, uncertainty, and we have all been on a nonstop emotional roller coaster that we have individually and collectively tried to navigate a set of circumstances that none of us experienced before. All right, then, folks. Uh, you know what? I got to ask you real quick here, uh, Monique. This has been a lot of back and forth. The same thing is happening in Prince George's County right now as well. Uh, they're trying to work it all out. Uh, from the three of you, is it time for kids to go back to the classroom? Ooh, I got <laughs> an email um, from one of the schools for three children, three different schools. And during the virtual session today for one of my children, the lead teachers said, oh, Ms. Presley, are you in the room, Ms. Presley? Which, how far away could I be? So I'm like, yeah, I'm here. And is, is, is your child gonna be coming back on such and such a date? And I'm like, oh, I was just assuming it was gonna get kicked again because this is like our fourth start date for a hybrid type scenario for that school. Uh, I, I'll say, like I said, the last time I was on your show, go, let's go with the science because I don't believe that it is failing us. Um, schools that are putting the proper protocols in place are having very good results, not just for children who we know are less susceptible, but also for teachers. And it has been proven that where schools are doing it safely, the schools are safer than community at large. They're safer than church. They're safer than the malls. They're safer than, you know, the McDonald's that's still open or the, or the patio cafe. But let's look at schools like DC and that's not even the worst example. Schools that don't have the financing, the wherewithal 
to be able to do it properly, teachers are dying. Uh, student numbers are up and the teacher and staff numbers are up even higher. So I think this can't be a blanket. It has to be either the federal government is empowering and funding and superimposing funding on the states such that they can do exactly what is necessary for it to be done safely with the smaller amount of students in classes, the requirement of masks, the requirement of testing where testing is necessary, the low number of staffers, um, the, the VAC systems, because the two of my kids that are in hybrid, <clears throat> they've spent a whole bunch of money changing the entire way that the place receives its air filtration system. And my kids say all the time, oh, no, I need both of those sweaters and a coat because they keep us like a cold in there because they've figured out how to stay alive and teach our kids. So if they're not going to do all of those things, then no, because it's, staying alive is more important. Robert, time for back well, in the classroom? Yeah, you, you know, I, I'm uncertain on this because we just had another, I think, two teachers and teacher aides in Cobb County who died recently here in the metro Atlanta area. And I understand... Uh, I understand parents' concerns. I understand uh, the need to get students back in the classroom. I understand the dangers involved with having them outside of it. But I'm thinking of it from the perspective of a school employee. And are you? do you really trust the same school district that will not supply you with markers and magic markers and pens and, pa and paper where you have to reach into your own pocket to uh, provide supplies for students? I know teachers who bring children's laundry home to wash their, uh, wash their clothes for them, bring food uh, for children. All the things that teachers are doing already so to trust school districts to put in the type of healthy health and safety measures that the NFL has not been able to do, that Major League Baseball has not been able to do, that the NBA has not been able to do, that Congress has not been able to do, that the White House has not been able to do, um, I would have serious concerns and trepidation if I was a teacher going back into that environment because, again, that you're not getting the same kind of health care that these multimillionaires who still haven't been, uh, been able to uh, deal with this pandemic are able to do. So we have to really follow the science Science, not rush these things, understand the dangers involved um, for, by not going back, but also prioritize the teachers and the staff members and their lives and their livelihoods, because at the end of the uh, end of the day, they have families they would like to go back to also, so let's not rush this. Mustafa. Well, this is a tough one for me. You know, my little niece and, and her brother just had COVID just a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, to, to have them be in a situation like that, or others, I should say, to be in a situation where they might get infected, you know, is really tough. Uh, I'm just like everybody else. Everything I do is grounded in the science and, and policy and the law. And, you know, until we make sure that we have the infrastructure in place um, to make sure that folks are protected. And that infrastructure is beyond what's going on in those four walls of that school. You're also talking about bus drivers. You're talking about a number of other folks who are part of the educational system who could possibly be, uh, in, you know, exposed and infected. You know, they have to make sure that they have the protections in place as well. So, well, you know, no two schools are the same. Um, so if, if we can make sure that the resources and the infrastructure and the science says that it's safe, then I think we're moving in the right direction. And also, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, we also got to address the, the broadband issues if students are staying home because we got far too many kids of color um, who can't even learn because they don't have the infrastructure in place.
Absolutely. Folks, uh, Wells Fargo is following through with a pledge in May last year to invest up to $50 million in uh, six black-owned banks. The banks include Broadway Federal Bank, Carver Federal Savings Bank, Citizen Saving Bank and Trust, Commonwealth National Bank, MNF Bank, and Optus Bank. As part of the investment, the banks will also have access to Wells Fargo's team for financial and technological development in order to help each bank grow and benefit. Bill Daly, Vice Chairman of Public Affairs of Wells Fargo, stated these investments are designed to help the banks become stronger and more impactful to the minority communities they serve, which leads to economic revitalization and job opportunities. Now, now, here's what I would like to see Wells Fargo is. I would like for Wells Fargo to have an intensive assessment of their advertising agent to see how much money they're spending on black ad agencies, black ad, black ad agencies, but also black media. See, let me explain, folks, why I'm saying this. See? So think about that there. Wells Fargo announces they're going to put $50 million in uh, black banks. But the question is, how are you also helping grow black businesses? Listen to what I'm saying, y'all. Listen to what I'm saying. So what happens is, I'm not talking about if you're Wells Fargo and you're buying tables at black events. I'm saying, how are you also investing in, what is your minority supplier development? What is your black supplier development? What black companies are you using? Are there black PR agencies, black advertising agencies, black accounting firms, black law firms, black bonding firms? You see what I'm talking about right here? See, th this to me is how granular we have to get, Robert, when we start holding people accountable with these announcements. And so, okay, sure, Wells Fargo sent it out, we got the press release, and let me be real clear, same thing. Netflix, they sent me a bunch of press releases uh, touting different shows they have. I'm like, okay, that's great, but Netflix, when are y'all going to start spending money? When are y'all going to start actually advertising? Stars. Oh, y'all got P-Valley? So y'all had Survivor's Remorse? Y'all got Power? Now you got Power 2? All the spinoffs. How much money y'all spending on black advertising? See, we have to be making a level of demands of companies that go far deeper. And again, I'm not just saying, ooh, what black media are you supporting? Because I have a black media company. I want to know, are you supporting the whole black ecosystem? And I want to see, and I don't want to see the minority number. I want to see the black owned number. Not the black targeted number. Because see, BT, that's black targeted. Complex, that's black targeted. I can go down the line, all the folk, the root, that's black targeted. That ain't black owned. I'm talking about what's black owned. You're, you're completely correct. And we have to re rethink how we look at these things because representation as an idea is a great thing. We need representation matters, but representation is passe at this point. Now it's about spending. So beyond not just what you were saying, how many black law firms are on retainer when you do major litigation? How many black, not black people who work for another law firm, how many black owned law firms are doing major litigation for, uh, for your company? How many black caterers do you have on site? How many black drivers and limo companies are you using? Uh, there, are, there are places across the board where those markets which have been historically closed to us, this is the idea of systemic racism, that because your father's grandfather's grandfather started this catering company in 1932 and Sony has been using the same catering company since 1932 or wherever it may be, that because we did not have access to enter that market, we're still being systematically deprived of the, uh, the rights to that market and the ability to compete in America autocracy uh, on that level. So we have to start making demands up and down the boards to create equity, not simply equality. I love seeing all the faces and the representation, those shoehorn, you know, a black neighbor in here and there just to make sure to have those diversity numbers up. But in reality, we need to find out not just 
uh, who's in front of the camera, but who's behind the camera? Who is behind the pen and paper uh, at the agency? Where exactly are all the funds going? And what is your commitment to diversity? Do you have a chief diversity officer? Are you recruiting on HBCU campuses? So while we have the ear of power, we have to make sure that we're making demands and making demands strongly. Uh, th look, that's why I mean, we have the segment called Where's Our Money? Uh, Black Economic Justice. That's what this is about. And again, uh, this is, to me, this is one piece. I appreciate the, uh, Wells Fargo putting $50 million into black banks, but also I remember a whole bunch of black people who lost their homes in the home foreclosure crisis uh, as a result of Wells Fargo as well, as a result of Countrywide, as a result of other banks. And so I don't look over that because if you actually add up, remember, we lost 53% of all black wealth due to the home foreclosure crisis. That's more than $50 million. Monique. Is it my turn? Yes, it is. Yes. Um, I agree with all of that, but, and I, I bank at Wells Fargo, just full disclosure, um, one of my, one of my accounts, but um, I'm still going to say this. I know personally of two vice presidents, uh, prior vice presidents of Wells Fargo, who have left for other operations within the past 70 to 90 days, uh, and they controlled diversity books, and they controlled uh, large business targeted at uh, minority businesses. Um, and I mean, you, you know, 250000 and above initial investment type books for one of them, and one um, diversity interest lending, and they both left to be places where they had more autonomy in being able to do business with businesses and individuals that could most benefit. So I just don't think it's a coincidence. So when I looked at what Wells had decided to do, I'm like, mm, is that a part of litigation or what? Maybe I'm jaded, but those are my two cents. Mustafa, I'm laying this out because what I'm trying to get African-Americans to do is to think vertical and horizontal. See, so again, perfect example, Netflix, they announced that they were invested, they were going to put $100 million into black banks. Cool. What else? See, that, that, that scene from Malcolm X, I'm not satisfied. That's one thing. Okay, but see... I want to know your commitment vertical and horizontal. I'm perfectly cool. Netflix, y'all hired Bazoma as chief marketing officer. Yay. Y'all gave a content deal to the Obamas. Yay. Y'all gave the richest content deal uh, to Shonda Rhimes. Yay. There's some other black people who have gotten content deals. Yay. But I'm going deeper. To Robert's point, I want to know, are you saying on all of the productions, who got the limo contract? Who got the catering contract? Who got all, see, this is, this is how, when you start talking about driving diversity, that's when you get real deep. That's when you start saying, hey, Netflix, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, any other company, um, when y'all buy your T-shirts and your hats and your jackets, who you buying it from? When y'all buy the pop-up tents that you use, who you buying it from? See, that I, I'm talking about across the board. And what I'm not talking about is a few black folks who you promoted. I'm talking about how deep 
are you drilling down when we talk about diversity and spending with black companies? Yeah, you know, the thing that, that I share with everybody who, who I work with is be very careful of window dressing. Because window dressing looks good until you pull the curtain back. And then you find out if there's really investments in the infrastructure, in the priority setting, um, in, in the policies that you're developing inside of your institution to make sure that every element uh, has justice built into it or has equity built into it. So when Robert was talking, I'm nodding yes, because you have to look at every one of these elements and ask, are you making a commitment in this space? Because it all comes back to actually being able to build wealth and build power based upon those sets of investments. So window dressing doesn't build power. It allows, you know, a handful of people maybe to be in a better position. And we, you know, we're not going to stop anybody from that. But what we're looking for is that real systemic change. You know, we talk about systemic racism, and we understand how that has dismantled and deconstructed our communities. Now we're talking about systemic investments, about how we rebuild uh, black wealth and black power so that we then can make sure that we're, our narrative, our stories are moving forward, and then we can help a whole bunch of other folks. So that's where my mindset is, and I'm sure that's where a lot of other people are now focusing and we got to get even more people to understand that you actually can have power if you can work and hold these folks accountable and say, you know, just this one-time investment is not what we're talking about. We're talking about long-term investments that actually can be quantified uh, and that we can actually see real change happening. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, and I and I just get I just get a, a kick out of the people who love to whine and complain. But the question is, what are you doing? Are you doing yep. the work? If you aren't, shut the hell up. Going to a quick, quick break. We come back. Uh, I'm going to talk with a sister who started her own uh, defense company. She's really focused and invested on STEM and technology. We'll talk about that next in our Tech Talk segment. Back in a moment. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. I grew up wanting a lot of activities in my neighborhood that was in close proximity. You know, my mom wasn't always there, so I didn't always have a ride to places. And, you know, you want to be able to walk down the street and get to something that's some food for your soul in your community. You know, you know, I relish, you know, the days of being in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and when I had to go out there and live with my people, they had actually black-owned corner stores. My uncle owned one. My uncle Donald owned a cleaners and a um and a corner store, and he he um he a city councilman down there now. And it's like that was big for him. He was like, "Yo, man, you got to own something. Got to own something." His wife was named Louise. It always killed me. I, I used to call him George Jefferson. His name was Donald because <laughs> <laughs> his wife was named Louise, and that was big to see my family own and stuff. And it just cultivated what my dad told me. My dad, he's not a lot, he didn't say a lot of good stuff, but the three things that he did give me, play chess so you'll be a thinker. You don't have to work for nobody. He told me that, I said, you don't have to work for nobody. The same energy that you put into, for somebody else, you can put that same energy into it for yourself. And then he'll go into his field. See, they talking about black people don't want to work. Black people just don't want no job. You know what We don't work for nobody else. We want our own stuff. That's you. Give me my own stuff. I come to work every day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he going, he going to his own spiel. And 
Like, I don't work for anybody. Hi, I'm Gavin Houston. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy, Jacob Lattimore, and you're now watching Roland Martin right now. Eee. Folks, uh, my next guest started a company uh, called Stemboard, which creates systems and solutions for federal and large-scale private sector clients. Aisha Bow, a former NASA aerospace engineer, founded the company in 2013 in order to make a difference and create opportunities to get young people engaged in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, also known as STEM. Now, according to Inc. 5000, Stemboard is one of the fastest-growing companies in America. She joins us now. Aisha, how you doing? I'm well. How are you, Roland? Uh, it's great to see you. Uh, so let's, first of all, before we talk about the company, uh, let, let's talk about you. Look, uh, double degrees, uh, University of Michigan, uh, but uh, you were not one of these brainiacs, always a straight-A student, uh, and you want this perfect student. Uh, you actually have a story that when you talk to when you talk to young folks, they can identify with as somebody who um, who went through stuff, but again got it together and now is in a position to really impact and change lives. Yeah, so I like to consider myself the accidental engineer. I started my undergrad in aerospace engineering with pre-algebra in a community college. I was what you'd call truant in high school because I was not focused. I had no career aspirations and I was just trying to find a way to feed myself. I just wanted a job. But it was in community college that I discovered a love of math and science that would propel me to complete an undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Michigan, which is one of the top four best aerospace schools in the country, and eventually a master's in space system engineering and earn me a role at NASA in Silicon Valley, working on small spacecraft and supporting the aeronautics mission directorate. And so um, as somebody who, again, who had to really lock down, focus, and, and, and really uh, chart, uh, chart their own path, why'd you go this route? What was it? What was interesting about uh, getting two degrees uh, uh, as, a, as a real rocket scientist? People joke like, I'm not a rocket scientist. Well, you actually are. Yeah, so it was this idea that everything I thought about myself was wrong. For so long, I felt ashamed because I was black. I felt guilty because I was poor. I felt like I couldn't achieve because people like my guidance counselor said, hey, I think you should be a cosmetologist. And, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It was that was all that she thought that I was capable of doing. And so once I entered the community college environment and I started to realize, hey, maybe everything that everyone told me about myself was wrong, I was determined to be everything that I thought was audacious. I wanted to live a big life. And so I said, hey, I'm going to go to the University of Michigan because you know what? I'm, I don't think I could get in. I'm going to study engineering because I love math and science. And if I'm going to study aero engineering, I'm going to be an aerospace engineer because I think that's the most incredible thing that I could do with my life. And I did. And since then, I've been on this mission to help people challenge what they think is possible for them and their lives. So you went this route, then you went to go work for NASA, but then you left. <laughs> yeah. And when you leave a government job, your family will think you're crazy. Like, listen, I love my family. But when I said to them that I was going to leave 
my government job for a company that I was going to create. They thought I lost my marbles, Roland Lay. It was, it was just like, it was a non-conversation. Are you kidding me? You, you're an aerospace engineer. You're a rocket scientist. You're just going to go. But yes, I was going into the community and I was talking to kids in schools on behalf of NASA. And I would show up and I would say, hey, you know, I am really excited to talk to you about this small spacecraft mission. Or I'm really excited to talk to you about what I'm doing in flight trajectory optimization. And they would look at me like, you're an engineer. You're kidding. I mean, I literally had my degrees in my trunk rolling and I would pull them out and I would show them to the kids to prove that I got the degree and I was supposed to be there. And there was something about that to me that was like, this is wrong. We as a society need to normalize minorities in these fields. And I'm going to start a company that's not only going to do that, but that's going to do something better than that. It's going to be impactful and it's going to provide engineering services to the U.S. government in a way where we can have national reach. And that's what's become Stemboard and eventually Lingo, our at-home self-paced coding kit that's being used by thousands of school kids right now in America, including some HBCUs, to teach computer science. And so with that, how has that gone? And what has been the reaction when you bring this kit to young people? So I love Lingo. Our clients include Microsoft, GE, we have Fayetteville State, we've got Bowie State, and a number of other HBCUs that we're working with. And one of the most touching pieces of input I received was from a student who sent us an email and said, this is the first time that I've seen this subject taught by somebody who looks like me. The head instructor at Lingo is a woman by the name of Danielle Regis. She's double degreed from Cornell, and she takes the students through the activities with passion. We tie it to art. We tie it to music. We tie it to fashion because guess what? I never thought I was going to be an engineer, and I don't assume that you want to be one. And so our content is designed to engage. It's designed to say, hey, this is how you can use this to do something that you're really passionate about. Just stay tuned. We're going to teach you how. And we also provide all of the material within our kits to make sure that students can not only build our lesson, but they can continue to tinker at home. And so we're getting input from 13-year-olds that say, hey, I just did this. I didn't need parental support, and I've built self-confidence. I'm seeing students say, guess what? You know, I thought engineering was really boring, but watching you guys makes me think differently about it. And I'm also hearing from parents and teachers that they're enjoying our content because we align to national learning standards we created a curriculum framework and we made it easy for organizations to build capacity while leveraging our content. Um, before I go to my panel with questions, one of the things that I always say is that um, you have to make something accessible and easily digestible for somebody to say, man, this, this, this is not bad. And so is that the approach you take as opposed to people who sit here, because I take it if you walk into the room, they go, hold up, you ain't an engineer. And, but, but you walk them through that so they understand that, no, 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 this thing is not as hard as you think it is, but let me just sort of explain it to you and put it in a different way that might get you excited about the field. That's exactly right. I mean, our example is not, hey, let's show you how to do some calculus. It's let's teach you how to build a backup sensor for a driverless car, right? You've seen a Tesla. You've heard the noise that cars make when they back up. You've probably ridden with your mom or guardian. So you get that basic concept. So we're going to show you how to build that. 
And what you're going to see from us at Lingo is our follow-on lessons are around music and sports. We're getting ready to release the kit that shows you how to make your favorite beats with a microcontroller, which I call internally Trap Lingo. Like, I want you to pull your favorite music from Megan Thee Stallion or whatever it is, just a few bars, not enough for us to worry about any type of copyright issues, but just a couple, a little bit of a melody so that you can play it on your board and you can see how, wow, all of a sudden this thing that seemed foreign is actually something that is applicable to a career field that I want to go into. And oh, by the way, it's not as hard as I thought it was. Uh, I got a feeling Mustafa is geeking out right now. So Mustafa, I will go to you with the first question. First of all, thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, I'm actually the son of an engineer. So numbers used to scare me when uh, I would see what he was doing. But um, I know that you have had some incredible experiences with young people. Is there one that just kind of stands out that made you say, I'm, I'm moving in the right direction? Yeah, I never thought that I was a role model. And I can remember meeting a girl named Claire when she was 13 and she walked up to me. I was at a aviation museum in Northern California, just kind of fulfilling a speaker request. And she said, hey, I, I want to be an engineer when I grow up. I want to be an aerospace engineer. And so I gave her my card. And listen, I've given out so many of these NASA cards. If you call me, great. If not, great, right? And she sent me an email. And she was so enthusiastic that I invited her in. And that one day turned into her coming back for a shadow day. It turned into her becoming a NASA intern. And now she's graduating from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo with an aerospace degree, and she's going to work for Blue Origin. And she said to me, Aisha, I never doubted that I could do it because I saw that you did it. And from that experience, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it bigger. I'm going to do it again. And I'm blessed that I run a contracting company where we've been in operation now since 2013. We're leveraging the U.S. taxpayer dollar to invest in the infrastructure and that's necessary to make a long-term change in how we educate minorities and women in America. Next question, Monique. Oh, I don't have a question. I have a person. <laughs> okay, Shelly. she comes. Do you want to elaborate? Here she is. I've got your next one. Homework. <laughs> this is Grace. Grace has a life in tech that her mother never could have dreamed. Say hi to everybody. Hi. But especially to this rising queen right there who's doing big things in tech. She's gorgeous, right? Okay. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. We need you. Oh, thank you. Roland, I mean, listen, can I come back? Because this is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's my show. I ain't got to ask nobody. That's what happens when, <laughs> that's what happens when you own your shit. Robert, what's your question for uh, Aisha Bo? All right. On a very, uh, the, your story about the guidance counselor struck me because literally almost word for word, the exact same thing happened to me. I went to Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville in high school. And when I came back, I told my guidance counselor, I wanted to go to MIT and be an aerospace engineer. They asked me, did I want to go to technical school to work on air conditioners? And that's the last conversation I had with them on the subject. Right now, you mentioned Blue Origin. So there's a whole renaissance in uh, private rocket companies, everything from Blue Origin, um, uh, Space Sets, of course, um, uh, and many 
the other country, Electron, more than anybody can count. How can African-Americans work on moving into this new and growing field? Because we just saw Jeff Bezos step down from Amazon to focus on uh, low Earth orbit and then eventually the new Glenn going for the moon missions and so on and so forth. So there's going to be a trillion dollar economy that for the most part we are shut out of on the front end. How can we work on remedying that? So I love this question because if you look at venture capital and large investments, 75% of that funding is concentrated in just three states, right? New York, California, Massachusetts. But when you're talking about the origin, when you're talking about SpaceX, guess where they are? They're in Florida. And when you have states with a high concentration of Black, Latinx, and female graduates of STEM degrees, such as Florida or Georgia, and they also have an affordable cost of living, that's key. So what I would like to see is more investment in these areas that already have that population, as opposed to um, investments where they would kind of require that that population moves to them in order to be part of their workforce and potentially even acclimate to their culture. The other thing that I actually have thought is maybe a perk of the pandemic is this idea that you can now work where you are, right? I mean, it was a really big deal for me to move from Michigan to Northern California. I knew a lot of other minority students that simply said, hey, we're, we're not gonna do that. We wanna go to other areas where we, for, we feel more welcome. And so this is an opportunity for these companies to say, hey, we can tap into this talent pool, which we all know is existing by working with these HBCUs and organizations that are designed to cultivate this talent directly and allowing them to stay in environments that are familiar to them and it can support their academic as well as professional growth. One of the things that, um, that, all, that this, and I, I was just talking about this, this idea of business um, uh, and again with contracts and race equity as well. And, and, and I want people to really listen to what I'm about to tell y'all right now that thing I issue too often again, we're not understanding how these dissect. Um, if you look at Elon Musk, worth billions on, on the use of federal taxpayer dollars, federal contracts, state giveaways, Donald Trump's daddy made all of his money, federal housing contracts. And so it's important for us to obviously, and most important, to amplify what you're doing because, and let me be real clear to everybody listening. I need everybody listening to what I'm about to say. What Aisha has laid out is not a damn nonprofit. Why am I saying that? Because there are too many people who want us as black folks to give our expertise away for free when others are earning millions and billions on the same expertise. And that's important to say because we have to have African-Americans also advocating for folks like Aisha when you're trying to get defense contracts, when you're trying to get contracts uh, from other agencies because that builds your business. And if Aisha Bowe, grows her business from 10 to 20 to 50 to 100 to 500 million to a billion dollars, imagine how many black children you now can impact when it comes to the area of STEM. That's what I mean when we talk about how we have to connect the dots and use each other's platforms. And just so everybody understand also what happens when you own your shit, 
I went to dinner with Aisha and a friend of hers who's a friend of mine Friday. She's on the show today. Not MSNBC, not CNN, but this is what happens when we are black and we own, we get to make the decisions on what we do and how we control our dollars. Now you can go ahead and respond. Roland, look, you know that uh, the federal government spends so much money, right? In 2019, 4.4 trillion, not billion, trillion dollars was spent by the government. And one of the things that I'm excited by is that the campaign outlined a $400 billion plan to support small businesses and tackle inequities in the federal contracting system. This is likely to increase the dollars that are going to go to small and minority-owned businesses. But guess what? There aren't enough small and minority-owned businesses. These are opportunities that people need to begin to prepare themselves for now. And one of the things that I want people to take out of my story and my time with you is that what I did isn't rocket science. You can start a company that is a small minority-owned business, and the government has resources that are designed to support you, and you can grow without taking outside capital. Everything that was accomplished from the lingo kits to our operation was done by bootstrapping through using government contracts to generate revenue. We are not a nonprofit. We choose to use our profit for good, and that's a decision that I can make because I, like you, own. But it's important for minorities, women, African-Americans, veterans, disabled community members, please know that these opportunities are available to you in the U.S. federal contracting system. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Aisha, you're doing a great job. Is there anything that uh, I can do to assist? Certainly uh, let me know. And I'm sure there'll be more great things that we will be uh, seeing and hearing from you in the future. Thank you. All right. Thanks a bunch. Folks, uh, that is it for us. We got to wrap this thing up. Uh, I do. Did I get some uh, did I get some mail today? I think I did. I don't know where I put it. Okay. All right. I'm going to read the letters tomorrow for our Bring the Funk fan club. If y'all want to support what we do, y'all know how to uh, help us. Uh, please join our Bring the Funk fan club. Your dollars make it possible for us to do this kind of show, to provide a platform to folks like Aisha, uh, to be able to get the story out, get the word out with what she's doing, the great things that she's doing. And of course, to feature uh, commentary. Folks, been, folks are loving you on YouTube and Facebook, Robert. They say you've been real spicy lately. Uh, somebody said, uh, are you eating spicier food or something? Um, they said that you have some oxtails before the show. I'm just saying uh, what the folks are just saying there. Uh, and uh, so, again, uh, the opportunity to have Robert and Monique and Mustafa on the show to be able to offer commentary is critically important, folks, as we able uh, to have our expert voices out here. Because if you watch cable network right now, you swear black lawyers don't exist. I mean, you just you just swear they don't exist. But they actually do, and we feature them. All right, folks, support us via Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered. Venmo.com is forward slash RM Unfiltered. And, of course, Zell is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Please support us. Also, shout out to Latasha Brown, Cliff Albright. I'm rocking uh, Black Live, Black Voters Matter today. Uh, so they uh, they, all, they always hook me up with gear. So uh, we were out on the road, of course. Uh, we did, I had to. As a matter of fact, y'all know, I know it's cold. So, you know, I told them, I said, we got to do it right as well. So, you know, when you're out there and, you know, and it's freezing, 
So you, you know, you got to represent even when it comes to the uh, the beanie as well. And so uh, I appreciate that. And um, they're the ones who we reached out to when we bought our gear. They hooked us up with the company as well. Folks, I'm going to see you guys tomorrow. Tomorrow's Thursday. We look forward to seeing Greg Carr, Reese, and Erica. Thank you so very much, folks. I shall see y'all tomorrow. You know how we always end the show. Ha! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club. The world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.